0: This message was given by Matt Harrima at Campus Fellowship's Fall Conference 2022. The theme of the conference was the greatest story ever told, a look at how the Bible is one coherent story. We hope you find this encouraging. I remember a lot of, I a lot of retreats growing up, and there are some that were more impactful than others, and I don't know where this one will end up landing in the scope of your life as you grow up, but I do pray that the truths we've been talking about this weekend will sink deep, and, um, and every other teaching you hear from here on out, you'll have shelves to set stuff on, structures to fit it into as you're walking through and reading the Bible on your own or hearing it preached on Sunday morning. So this morning, I'm going to follow through on my promise that we'd make it all the way through the entire Bible. We started in Genesis. We're going to end up in Revelation, and, uh, and we touched down it most of the way through. Uh, That's, uh, we're going all the way, we're going all the way to the end today, and we're going to finish our chart. We put it on pause last night because last night's message was too important for graphs and charts, but we're going to finish out our chart this morning, so let's get moving. Let's flip back to that chart with David. Last, uh, yeah, last night we discussed how the old covenant led to and was fulfilled in Jesus. All of these arrows, all of these boxes Uh, They culminate in Jesus, the final point on the timeline. Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, it decisively dealt with the problem that we talked about, our fundamental problem of sin. And he ushered in the new covenant. He ushered in a new covenant, a new offer of relationship for anyone who shares in Adam's faith or Abram's faith. And believes that Jesus is God's Messiah, the promised one. Jesus is God's Messiah. God himself, who did all the work necessary to fulfill all those requirements of the law. He was the promised seed of Abraham. So everything that was promised to Abraham, everything that was promised... To Moses and everything that was promised to David came true in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible means when it says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. There's a song we sang yesterday that all his promises are yes and amen. That's true. They're yes and amen in Jesus is how that verse goes. All the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ And we get to participate in those promises. We get to experience the blessing of those promises through Jesus because he inherited all of them. He fulfilled all the law. He is the heir of the throne of David and the one who gets all the stuff that God promised to Abraham. And if we are united to Christ by faith, we become his brothers and sisters and the Bible says co-heirs. With him. So when you see promises in the Old Testament, do they apply to us? Yes, in Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. What are the features of the new covenant? We go back to our, our table that we've been building. We have the promise of God with us. And you'll notice here, by the way, I have two columns left, but only one sermon and only one covenant there's two parts to this covenant that are going to be relevant for your Christian life. There's theologians call it the already and the not yet. So what Jesus did when he came the first time was he ushered in the new covenant and he ushered in this new age. But that age is not yet complete. He's coming again a second time. Have you heard that? That's really good news. So there are some things about this promise in the new about these promises in the new covenant that only come true when he comes back the second time. But for now. God with us through the Holy Spirit sealed inside of us. We receive the promise of the Holy Spirit we learned last night. A people followed through on the people is now the church, which is the church God's people consist of Jews and Gentiles. That's the mystery hidden for ages. But it's not really a mystery. We've been talking about it this whole time. These promises have always had a global impact, have always been intended to bless the entire world, Jew and Gentile. And here now we see that through Christ, the church is the people of God, Jew plus Gentile. The promised place. We're going to talk about this a little bit more Our promised land is the whole earth, just like Adam, just like Noah. It's a new earth. This place is not our home. I'm going to talk about that, this promised new earth and this not being our home more in a bit. And the king, not man under God anymore, not God himself, but yes, God himself. Jesus is our king. King Jesus, the promised offspring of David. And what are the obligations of this covenant? We talked about covenants having obligations and consequences. The obligations of this covenant, last night, we learned are believe, trust Jesus. And that trust being shown, just like Abram trusting God, go from the the land of your fathers to the place I'll show you. He believed God, and so he went. If he believed God and didn't go, could we really say he believed God? Well, Believing God, what does that look like? We talked about last night. Peter said, repent, be baptized. Turn from your old life, follow Christ, join the church. The sign of the covenant with Moses was circumcision, with us is baptism. What's the scope? We've been talking about the scope. Let's go back to our chart. I'm gonna finish this out. All the promises of God are yes and amen. All the old covenant finds its completion and fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and he ushers in a new people called the church. The church. All those people who trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on their behalf, and who through faith follow his teaching, follow him with their life, they now are the people of God and those arrows proclaiming his excellencies to the watching world. Let's look at this. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. All these things I just talked about. I probably should have done the Peter verse first and then shown you the chart, but you know, foreshadowing and all that. What does the scripture say about this new people of God? Peter, he writes to the church and he says this. Verse nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you hear the echo of Exodus 19? Do you remember that from yesterday morning? Exodus 19:6 says that very same thing. I chose you to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Who's that now? The church a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were outside of that square in the graphic, but now you are a people. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are now part of God's people. Your sins forgiven by faith in Christ. Dear friends, Verse 11, I urge you as strangers and exiles. There's that promised new land. This is not our land. There's not land in the Middle East. Our land is the promised whole new earth. You're strangers and exiles here. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. That's how we follow Jesus. Be like God. That's what that is. We've been talking about that all along. All the commands of God are commands to be like me, he says, what is this command? Wage war? Abstain, sorry, from, abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. That's God once again saying, be like me. Verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, by the way, not if they slander you. Anybody experienced slander? Anybody experienced people posting on social media about campus fellowship and what they're up to. When they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works. We can't deny these guys are good students and hard workers and really nice people, as a matter of fact. They will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. When Christ comes back, they will go, I guess they were right. We should have known. They were really good students really hard workers, they actually loved and helped and served people. Are you living your life in a way that when Christ comes back, people will say, you know, come to think of it, come to think of it, they were very honorable people. So from here we see we have a mission. We are a chosen race. We have a mission, praises, proclaiming the excellencies Proclaim the praises, CSB says, of the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. What's that talking about? It's talking about evangelism, isn't it? We're proclaiming how amazing God is that he brought me out of darkness into marvelous light. We're strangers in exiles. This place is not our home. Don't get too comfortable here. This place is wonderful. It's full of amazing fruit that we get to eat and steak. We talked about that too with Noah. I'm going to keep using that joke. That's what dads do. We beat jokes to death. This place is wonderful. we got lots of amazing things to enjoy here, but it's not our home. We have a better place coming. It's going to look a lot like this place. It's called a new earth. It's going to be very recognizable, but all the bad stuff, finally gone. All the sin, finally gone. We are strangers and exiles here. We have a better kingdom and a better country coming. Third out of four points, Holiness, lives of holiness, be like God and honorable. This is where I kind of want to camp today, this idea of honorable, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day He visits. I want to tell you a little bit about a little more about my story. When I was 20 years old, when I was 20 years old, I realized I had this, this kind of this moment. That if God is God, and Jesus is his son, and this book is true. See, I'd grown up in the church. I grew up in the church. My dad was saved when I was three years old. And he taught me to pray, and he taught me to read the Bible. He helped me memorize Psalm 23 and the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments. That was my bedtime routine, by the way. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 23 and the Ten Commandments. My dad was a good Presbyterian, catechizing his son. He was actually Dutch Reformed. It's a little more complicated than Presbyterianism. And he took me to Awana. He took me and my sisters to Awana, where we learned to memorize something like 250 verses if you go through the entire program. Some of you are familiar with Awana. And I loved Jesus. I thought, I thought Jesus is pretty great, <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't like that guy, right? My dad did an excellent job of raising me in the faith, showing me the true story. But when I was 20, I realized, yeah, I was just kind of banking on my dad's faith, which is actually not a bad thing to do. Most of you are at this age where you're starting to realize for yourself, the things that you were taught when you grew up in the church. If you grew up in the church, more and more and more of you and your generation did not grow up in the church. Your parents did not teach you the truth. And so you're learning this for the first time, and that's amazing. That's wonderful. It's actually really a good thing. But for those of us who did grow up in the church, about this age, a few things happen biologically in our brain called emotional maturity where we start making choices for ourselves. And there's a reason that we start leaving home at this age. There's a reason that we go to college at about this age. There's a reason we start picking careers out at about this age. And at about that age, when I was about your age, I realized that if this is actually all true... Uh, This was a new realization for me at the moment. Then my whole life, every single moment of of my life, by right, is God's. I belong to him. All these things that I had recited growing up under my dad's tutelage, growing up under the church's tutelage, growing up, which were all true and good, and I'm really glad my dad did a great job doing that. But I was realizing, oh wait, I have to actually own this. I'm away from home now for the first time. And for the first year, I just kind of wandered, did whatever felt good at the time, which was not going to church. Going to church early on Sunday morning does not feel very good, right? Unless you have owned and owned your faith and own your love for Christ, then it's actually a pretty exciting time. If this was all true, I realized he is my Lord and my Master. I have to do what he says, and I actually found that I wanted to do what he says. Before that, I was doing it because my dad—I respected my dad—and he said it was the right thing to do. Now, now I realized I, the reason he told me that is because it was all true and it was the right thing to do. Do you know the situation I'm describing? Some of you have had the same realization. At the time, I thought maybe I just got saved. Actually, and to this day, I'm not real sure. Did I get saved at that point? Was I actually a Christ follower before that? I don't know. I don't think it actually matters too much. What mattered is at that point, I was following Christ at any cost. All of my goals, my dreams that I had set up for myself, those don't matter. I don't want my goals for myself, I want Christ's goals for myself. At the time, when that happened, it was such a big experience in my life, I interpreted that as a call into full-time ministry, because really I had no other framework, I had no other framework for somebody who was really fully devoted to Christ uh, than missionaries and pastors. Those were the only two people I thought, who are the people that actually really love Jesus? Well, those missionaries and pastors, totally forgetting about my dad, who was an, basically an accountant for an agricultural chemical company, and a very, very faithful Christian, Still is to this day. I'm talking about it in the past tense because that's, that's what happened 30-odd years ago, 40 years ago. The only framework I had for fully devoted Christian service because I was being short-sighted was being a full-time pastor, full-time missionary. So flash forward to the end of my college career, which I largely wasted. I didn't get very good grades in college. I'm ashamed to admit to this day. Because, well, I'm going into ministry anyway. So this degree, ah, it doesn't really matter. My aim was to become a supported campus missionary through Reliant. And I wonder how many of you, like, that's your aim too. That's a really good aim. Hang on to that if you are thinking about that. And what I love right now, especially with what's going on in Des Moines, with what's going on in Ames, is we kind of make you prove that that's your calling. (laughs) We don't just let anybody who decides to do that just do that. I thought I wanted to be a full-time supported campus missionary through Reliant because I thought that was the most spiritual, most significant way anyone could serve God. And I think I thought that because at conferences like this, you had guys who were full-time either pastors or campus missionaries through Reliant telling you this is the most important thing in the planet and the best way you could spend your entire life is by fully devoting your Christ. your are fully, fully devoting your whole life to full-time uh, vocational ministry through Reliant, raise your support, go on staff, go reach the world for Christ. That's, what, that's the message I received, whether or not it was actually explicitly said. I would say things like, I want to be freed up to serve God full time. I don't want to have to have a normal job, which would mean, I thought at the time, that I would have to sit on the sidelines of God's service eight hours a day, tapping my fingers on the desk, gutting it out so that I could make money, so I could get back on the field and play the real game, which was missionary service. That's what I was thinking at the time. I hope you realize I'm going somewhere with this. My mind changed. But here's the thing. God being God and in control of things like this never gave me the opportunity to go into full-time ministry. To this day, I am not full-time in ministry I started to raise money because uh, to become a full-time campus minister through Reliant, but that door closed in a very obvious way to me and my wife. I was never offered a full-time salary from my church, and the scripture commands me to provide for my family, so, uh, so it was pretty obvious that God was not calling me into full-time ministry, and I was very confused. Lord, what was this calling on my life then? And all along the way, God had been handing me this rather unique and amazing career through uh, all of it through a set of fairly unique circumstances, this career in web development, which I guess at the time I thought, that's fine. I'll, I'll use that to pay the bills. It's kind of fun. I enjoy it. I'm actually pretty good at it, and people seem to want to know what I think about it. Um, but, you know, that was, that was a thing that I could like, to pay the bills so I could do the higher and more important calling of ministry as a volunteer. And I was very, very frustrated about this because I still had the attitude that it was somehow more spiritual to serve in full-time ministry. And there was a defining moment in my life that came in the middle of all of this. About 10 years in, actually, when I rediscovered an ancient teaching of the church. And it changed my life. And now I want to, I want to give you guys a sword and a shield for just a second. Anytime a teacher from a stage says, I rediscovered an ancient lost doctrine, and it changed my life, Your shields should go up in all the red flags. But it wasn't some obscure thing. It wasn't something that only I discovered and no one else, and now I have this unique thing to share with you all. No, this is something that has been held in the church ever since the beginning. And it comes from this passage in 1 Peter 2. And it's just that on our little branch of the Christian family tree, which is a big, big tree with lots of branches on it, this teaching had been pretty much de-emphasized in favor of the full-time ministry thing. That doctrine is called the doctrine of vocation. And this doctrine tells us that when the Scriptures speak of these good works and honorable conduct, like 1 Peter 2 and Ephesians 2.10 and lots of other places talk about, it's talking about all kinds of work. It's not talking about just the mission stuff. At conferences like this, where we come to be challenged to really go for it in our faith, and I hope you have been really challenged to really go for it in your faith this weekend, that is my goal, to live all out for Jesus. We need to be reminded to live a life of radical obedience to God's word. It's just that we need to be be careful that we're living a life of radical obedience to all of God's words. And there are two places in the Bible that says you should aspire to something. Two places in the New Testament that tell you you should aspire to something. And one of those places is to young men who aspire to the office of pastor or overseer. And it says that's a noble aspiration. And then it goes on and says, Now, like here's a bunch of tests to see whether or not you really should be a pastor. <laughs> There's a second place, and it's in First Thessalonians chapter four. It's in verse ten. And it's the second half of the verse, he actually starts a thought. but We encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Um, yeah. So Paul tells the Thessalonians that God calls us to this radical, revolutionary life of living quietly, minding our own business, and working with our hands. Here's the thing. In in my zeal to live all out for God, I, I had completely neglected the primary thing he calls each and every single one of us to. Each and every single one of us in this room are called to everyday faithfulness in the small things. Living a life, living an honorable life so that the Gentiles, the, the, the heathen can see your life and go, you know, that's an honorable person. Living... A life of everyday faithfulness in the seemingly mundane, less spiritual tasks of hard work, hard study, discipline, good grades, excellent at a craft, providing for your needs and the needs of your family and the needs of your brothers and sisters in the church and all those around you, your neighbors. This is the truly spiritual, radical Christian life of obedience. Everyday faithfulness. In the small, mundane things. If I were to challenge this entire room to consider going on staff full time into vocational ministry somehow, 95% of you would end up very frustrated in your life because the reality is only about 5% of you, by statistics, are going to have the opportunity and, in fact, the calling to go into full time vocational ministry. And by the way, 5% of you should do that. I could probably take any other single vocation. Engineering. And there's probably about 5% of you in this room that are called to the vocation of engineering. Landscape architecture. There's probably smaller percentage than four, so I probably need to do some more like, you know, generally like interior design and, and, and architecture and landscape architecture. 5% of you called to that particular calling. Homemaking and motherhood. Probably, I don't know, i that percentage is a little different because it doesn't actually conflict with some of their callings, 40% of you. I could take any one single specific vocation that you would do for a job on a day-to-day basis and about five to 10% of you would be called to that. And it's funny when I would hear at conferences missionaries and pastors and evangelists saying, all of you should consider the most important work in life, the the work that I have chosen for myself, the most important one, evangelism. And then I would go to my Engineering 160 class, which is the class where they tell you why it's so great to be an engineer. And the engineering professors would say something like, you know, what the world needs is more engineers. Engineering is the most fulfilling, the most satisfying, and the most important work on the planet. And you all should consider being engineers, and let me tell you why. And I'm like, wait, that sounded just like the thing at the conference. Um, And I ended up quitting engineering, by the way. I have a degree in psychology. And by the way, all the psychologists are like, you know the most important thing that this world needs? More psychologists. That's blatantly false, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Evangelism, mission... Bible study, prayer, evangelism, ministry, devotion, these are all integral part of every Christian's life. And every Christian is called to evangelize. Every Christian is called to be a priest. That's what your identity is. You're a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. You all should be doing that. Many of you in this room are, in fact, doing that. But I came to understand that everything else I also do is part of being that holy chosen nation. Paying my taxes on time. Taking out, the, which by the way, I fail out from time to time and I had to pay a lot of money one year because I failed to pay my taxes on time seven years prior and then they didn't tell me about it. And then all these, you know, pay your taxes on time. That's my, write that down. But... <laughs> I mean, like taking out the garbage, bathing regularly, uh, taking care of your house or your dorm room or whatever. All of these things are holy callings because God is the one calling you to all these things. Ephesians 2, 10 says, God has created works for you Uh, good works for you in advance. He's prepared them for you to walk in them. They're good works because God is calling you to those tasks. Two, you are ultimately working for God in each of these tasks. Colossians 3.24 says, He's your master. He's the one you're serving in in your job. You know, don't, don't just worry about your boss. Worry about your boss's 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 boss. Jesus, who's actually your boss, you're serving him. He's always watching. Don't just worry about what your boss thinks. Worry about what your capital B boss thinks. And finally, God is using your tasks to accomplish his work. And that's the most mind-bending thing. That God has a lot of work to do on this planet. God has a lot of prayers to answer. Martin Luther used to talk about, when you pray for your daily bread. That's the Lord's prayer, right? Give us today our daily bread. I, I am just, if I were a betting man, I would bet all of my money, if anybody would take me up on this, that all of you have at one point prayed that, that prayer, give us today our daily bread in some form or another. Lord, provide the things I need for the day. And when you looked up from the prayer, there was not a loaf of bread on the table that had miraculously appeared that was not there previously. Do you know how God answers that prayer for daily bread? This is what Martin Luther taught. He answers your prayers for your daily bread by the farmer planting and growing and harvesting wheat, taking it to the miller who grinds it into flour, who then takes it to the baker who bakes it into loaves, who then takes it to the grocer who sells the loaves of bread to, and this was at old times, so don't be offended by this, who sells it to the housewife who takes it home and prepares the meal and serves the daily bread. Do you know how many different kinds of vocations God uses to answer prayers? All of them. All of the ones that don't involve inherent sin like, I don't know, slave trade or prostitution or advertising. <laughs> I'm glad you like that too. <laughs> We are called to a life of ordinary daily faithfulness, an honorable life. And I want to call you, young men and women, to an honorable life. Start working on going to bed on time. I know. Amen! Amen. You know one of the one of the best conference messages I ever heard. One of the best conference messages I ever heard, the guy's only point, and he used no scripture for this, which made it the worst conference message I ever heard, but it was so good because he said, a lot of you out here, a lot of you in this room are struggling to have your daily devotional time. You are struggling to have enough energy during the day. You're struggling to have enough time in the day to get all the things you need to get done, done. And he said, I have one tip for you, and this is going to fix all of those things. And we're all like, okay, tell us. And he said, go to bed on time. And we said, no. Oh. <laughs> Everyday faithfulness, an honorable life that people can look at and say, that's a good dude. I should. You know what? I want to get to know him. I want to ask him about what's, what makes him tick. And Peter later says in that same book, he later says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. That's, evan- that's where most of your evangelism is going to come from throughout your life. Your time in campus ministry right now, your time in campus ministry right now, I'll put it this way, it's a little bit artificial. The college lifestyle, the life most of you are living right now, is a little bit artificial and it will be over in a few years. That's okay, live your artificial life right now. Just recognize, it's something like you're actually in seminary, okay? Seminary is a time when when, um, some church traditions, we don't do this. Uh, some church traditions, they'll send away a young man who wants to be a pastor, and they'll spend three or four years in this artificial place called a seminary, which means seedbed, by the way. Seminary means seedbed. And it's a place where they can be cultivated and grown into a person who knows the Word of God deeply. You're sort of like that, but for mission. You're in this artificial time frame where you can really kind of pick your schedule, even though you have a lot going on. And you can order your life in a very intense way. You don't have a lot of other responsibilities in your life right now, most of you. Most of you don't have a wife and children that you also have to think about and live with and coordinate with. Some of you have a very heavy class load and workload on top of that. I understand life is stressful. Don't hear me, don't hear me denigrating that. But you have the opportunity to use your time as you see fit in a very concentrated way. Establish good habits Now. So that when you get onto the work world and everything happens on a much longer time scale at a much slower pace and eventually you run out of energy a lot faster than you did in your 20s, you can make the best use of the time. Live a life of everyday faithfulness. Live a life of mission through this evangelistic efforts that a lot of you are participating in on campus and through vocation. Through your Everyday tasks, as you go throughout life, that's gonna be your most, your best opportunity to reach out. It'll change. Your opportunities to reach out right now are mostly with classmates, dorm mates, roommates, that sort of thing. That will change. You're gonna have coworkers that you have to get along with for years at a time. That pace of life, that pace of ministry, the rhythm changes. But the best way to reach out to them is by living an honorable life that they respect and appreciate, and you serve them, and they ask you, why are you living like this? But also, I don't want to de-emphasize what you're doing right now, and I don't want to de-emphasize the importance of bringing people with you to church, to being excited about Jesus and proclaiming his excellencies to everyone you get to know. In fact, I'm really encouraged by your generation specifically. A research study just came out this year, 2022, from the American Bible Society, and it confirmed something that I think a lot of us suspected. And it showed us that Gen Z adults, and now they were defining that as age 25 and younger, are more active as a generation in actually sharing their faith than any other generation, than the millennials, who so I'm just kind of on this border between millennial and Gen X. I'm actually in the two-year slot that's neither. So I'm really confused. I don't have an identity. <laughs> Gen X... Baby boomers, and they call them the elders, those over the age of 74. Those, those people, you know, they're, they're pretty active, but Gen Z is outpacing all of them and actually sharing their faith. And here's the other really cool thing I want to encourage you with. Your generation that are not Christians are more open to spiritual conversations than any other generation as well. You have an amazing time ahead of you right now. The fields are ripe. People are interested. You are experiencing this on campus. Some of you are here for the first time. You've never done anything like this, anything like a church conference or anything like that because God is getting a hold of your generation. When I was your age, I heard things like, we want God to get a hold of our generation. The generation prior to me said, we're gonna reach every nation in this generation. We always talked about generation, but finally your generation has the statistics to prove it. You're actually doing it. Praise the Lord. And your friends and your people around you are actually interested in hearing about it. Because why? Because my generation and the generation ahead of me didn't raise our kids in the fear and training of the Lord. My peers were raised by people who kind of spurned the church. Your your peers were raised by agnostics. There's a lot of spiritual openness. Take advantage of that. And all along the way, be the best whatever that God is calling you to be. Don't neglect your calling. Don't neglect your work for more spiritual tasks. God's calling you on a moment-by-moment basis to evangelize, to be at work, to be at class. You wonder, should I share the gospel or should I do the assignment? Well, if the assignment is due, do the assignment, and then later go share the gospel. Be excellent at whatever God has called you to be. God needs people in every field. He needs students. He needs manual laborers. He needs skilled artisans. He needs executives and directors. He needs spouses. He needs parents. He needs campus staff. He needs evangelists, missionaries, and pastors in every field to accomplish his work. Like the farmer, miller, baker, grocer, housewife answering the prayer for daily bread... He needs people in every single field. God is seeking to bless the world, just like we talked about. Ever since Adam, ever since explicitly to Abram, the whole world will be blessed through you. God is trying to bless the world through your work in every single field. He's using you, his holy chosen nation, his royal priesthood, in every single field to be really excellent at what you do. How is somebody a Christian carpenter? Do they make tables with Bible verses on them? No. They make really good tables and sell them at a fair price and get along with their coworkers. How is somebody a Christian architect by making churches? Not necessarily, but by making really good buildings that are extremely useful at a fair price and doing a good job of getting along with their coworkers in the meantime. How is somebody a Christian programmer? Christian computer programmer. By making programs that help people read the Bible sometimes, but mostly by making really good software and charging a fair rate and working hard for whoever they're working for and seeking to get along and love and serve their coworkers. That's how you're a Christian in every single field. I want to close this by showing you the end of the end, so let's finally flip to Revelation. We have a mission that we're on. God's seeking to bless the entire world. He's seeking to reach and find all of his people. And the good news is, Revelation tells us, this is what Revelation is about, by the way, the mission will be successful. Jesus wins. If you want to write a caption under Revelation, the caption is, Jesus wins. Let's look at Revelation chapter 7. This is... Looking at the end of the end. Revelation does this weird thing. This is my opinion. It's not my opinion. It's my position. (laughs) There's several positions on what Revelation is doing. The most clear Revelation has ever been to me is when you see it as going through the same timeline over and over and over. It does it about nine different times. It has one timeline, and then it does the timeline again, and then the timeline again, and the timeline again, which is why chapter 7 is already talking about the end of the end, and there's still, uh, what is it, 14 more chapters left. 15. Verse 9, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their head, hands. Read that verse again. A vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, or every language. That is an image of a successful completed great commission. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures they fell face down before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. There is a judgment coming. This is going to be, I'm building our our chart again here. There's one more frame in the chart. Verse 15 the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. One of the best songs ever written in the world, Handel's Messiah. The Hallelujah Chorus. Verse 16, the 24 elders who were seated before before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. There's the rod of iron that the promised Messiah would finally have. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Judgment Day is such a hard topic. Judgment Day is such a hard topic to think about, but it is so important that you see the wording here. What is the result of unrepentant sin? We talked about this throughout. Sin brings destruction. How are unrepentant sinners labeled here? Those who destroy the earth. There is a judgment day coming and there is a new reality, a new final state finally coming with it. Turn to chapter 21. Here's the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I also saw the holy city The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Does that sound familiar from our walkthrough from the Bible? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Finally, the problem dealt with with finality. We're back not just to Eden, but to the new Jerusalem. The story of the Bible is a story from the garden to the city from the garden where there's the possibility for sin and in fact it does happen to the city where sin and grief and pain are no more. We don't just get to go back to paradise. We get to go to what would have resulted if Adam had not sinned. And here's where we finish our chart and our diagram. Here's what's coming. God with us, finally he is dwelling with us. The dwelling place of God is now with man. The place, the new earth. The people, all the redeemed. The church, believers, Jew and Gentile alike. And a king, he shall reign forever and ever. Let's finish our chart. You've noticed I've left this large black margin on the right side. Because there's something after the end of that time, which I'm finally labeling Judgment Day. By the way, that's what that says if you can't read it in the back there. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming and all the redeemed. When I was making this chart, Nancy asked me, why why doesn't the triangle go all the way to the edge of Noah? And the answer is because unfortunately some people continue their rebellion through Judgment Day and are cast into outer darkness. But all the redeemed all those who trust in the blood of the Lamb and not their own works, all those who followed Jesus unto death experienced the blessing of the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. It's with this in mind that we recall the task Jesus gave the church. Some of his last words before he ascended into heaven, I hope you're familiar with this. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came to them and he said, here's the covenant prologue, by the way, all authority on... Heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why do I have a right to tell you to do this? Because I have all authority on heaven and earth. I am king. So what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. All the way to the end. I'm with you always. This command is the same ring to it as be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it doesn't it He says be like me proclaim the excellencies of the creator the beauty the wonderfulness the mercy the desire for relationship the desire to bring people into his covenant relationship and as we saw in revelation that mission to make disciples from every nation it happens And the reality that we get to know at the end is that that mission is successful. It spurs us on to the task. It gives us hope that when we go about the work Jesus gave us to do, an ordinary life of vocation, and in that evangelism, it works. We have hope that sometimes people are going to get saved. Many of you in this room either know that because that's you recently or you've recently been able to lead someone to Christ. You know this is true. And that's my fi- here's my final point for the conference. Don't do this alone. Do this together with the church. We're designed to pursue this life of vocation and mission within the church. I want you to know that each campus fellowship group here is designed to be inside of a local church that consists of multiple generations with a wide variety of gifts. Lots of age ranges so that you can benefit from people that are, um, that are in a different phase of life from you. This is part of God's design. It's so important for you to be an active member of a local church, to be built into by the, the teaching from the pastors, by the wisdom of the elder saints, and to lend your gift to the church in service. We old people can really, really benefit from the youth and the zeal, and the joy, and the energy, and the excitement for mission. We forget what it's like to be young. You remind us. It's helpful. That's part of how you lend your gift. Be ushers. Be Sunday school teachers. Play in the band. Pick up trash. Set up. Tear down whatever needs to happen. Be part of it. I want you to know that it is important for you to realize that CF is not your church. CF is not your church. I used to think this way when I was in college. I used to kind of think, well, this is my real church. Sunday morning is a little bit boring, a little bit irrelevant. And I was despising the gift God had given me of the local church, of people who were older than me and had gone on before me and could help me through phases of life and help me think through wisdom and decisions. Men who had been studying the Bible longer than I'd been alive teaching me. It's so important to be part of a local church. We saw this last night in Acts 2. Let's go back there. Acts 2, 41 and 42. This, remember last night, the response that the people had to Peter preaching the gospel, and they were cut to the heart, and they said, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized. What happened next? Verse 41. Those who accepted his message, they were Baptized. And on, and on that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. And here's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This describes church. This describes active participation and membership in a local church under the watchful care of qualified pastors who are charged by God with watching over your soul in fellowship with people of all ages who can teach us about phases of life we have no experience with and, and with whom we can share our gifts and our passion and our energy and our time by the way this is a really cool little transaction like the old people can share their money with you and you can share their t- your time with them it works out really well <laughs> What, what do we see here? We see devotion to the apostles' teaching. What's that? It's devotion to the scriptures. The church was devoted to learning the scriptures. The church was devoted to the fellowship. What does that mean? They were devoted to each other. They weren't necessarily devoted to the act of fellowshipping, of meeting. They were devoted to the fellowship. It's a noun. Meaning the people. They were devoted to one another, meeting needs, sharing with each other, helping each other, encouraging each other. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to remembering Christ through this thing called communion that we talked about last night. They were devoted to prayer, the most important one maybe. If we had to pick one, just pray. So here's my final exhortation to you. If you've been impacted at all by this conference and want to live this radical life of a committed Jesus follower, go home and commit yourself to your local church. Pursue your various vocations as a student or whatever your job is right now with excellence. And all along the way, remember that as Peter said where I started today, you are, brothers and sisters, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.